What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. If you eliminated dinosaurs from the history of the Earth, you'd be missing an important piece of why things are the way they are today. Dinosaurs were here. They were huge. And without them, we wouldn't have birds. And without studying dinosaurs, we wouldn't truly understand our planet. So today, we're going to be the paleontologists of the business world. RCA was here. It was huge. And then it vanished just like that. the show where we dive into the strange but true stories of iconic companies. Whether they're a current bright star, in the midst of a massive dumpster fire, or settling into the dust heap of history, they all have a past worth knowing. I'm Dana Barrett. I'm a former tech executive, an entrepreneur, and a TV and radio host. And over the course of my career, I've interviewed thousands of business leaders and reported on the bright beginnings and massive flameouts of the brands we know and love. Some of their stories are eye-opening, some are disheartening, and some show us how interconnected it all is. The story of RCA is one I wanted to tell without really knowing why. It's a brand I remember from my childhood that was, I don't know, just kind of everywhere. All of our TVs were RCA, my cassette player was RCA, and of course there was RCA music. With me today, as always, is my producer, co-host, and the official millennial in the room, Nick Bean. <laughs> Nick, do you even remember RCA growing I, up? I, I think I had an RCA TV in my room when I was like a really little kid, but that's about all I remember. You know, I have to say, though, after we've done all this research, it's really crazy to know how RCA like weaves into the stories of so many other companies. Did you know that? Is that why you wanted to do this episode, Dana? You know, I I have to admit, I really didn't. But somehow this brand just kept popping into my head, not to be all like woo-woo. But I feel like I, I must have known intuitively that there was something to this story. But I think for me, it really was just that it was everywhere. 
And then, you know, I got busy with my life. And it the next time I looked up, I, I, there was no more RCA. And so I just sort of, I think, was always slightly curious about how they sort of got to be everywhere and then why they disappeared and where they went, you know? <laughs> Um, and then once, to your point, when we started to learn about the actual history of the company, I was really surprised by how many other company stories intersected with the story of RCA. Anyway, the bottom line is I, I really didn't know. I didn't even really remember that RCA stands for Radio Corporation of America uh, and that its beginning was the beginning of the radio business that we both know and love and have been a part of for years now. Right. I know. I had no idea until we started researching RCA. And I also didn't know that RCA kind of started as like a government conspiracy. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's funny how when I was doing a business radio show for so many years and I always tried to keep sort of politics and like government out of the business conversation. But really, even way back then, government was inserting itself into private business whenever it felt like it needed to. And business, of course, was doing what it could to influence the government all the way back then. I know. I think the biggest difference is now versus then is the average, you know, American citizen had no idea that all this stuff was going on. Yeah, totally fair. <laughs> we did not have the interwebs True. back then. Um, so I think, you know, people just thought there was a clear delineation and, you know, between business and government and all that. And, right. No. So I think given all of that, we need to go back all the way to the beginning, essentially to the start of radio to truly tell the story of RCA. And that means we need to talk about essentially the inventor of radio, a guy named Guillermo Marconi. Ooh, can you say that three times fast? Guillermo? Hey, good job. Yeah, it is it was a very only one time slow. <laughs> um, can we call him just Marconi from now on? Yeah, we're going to go with Marconi. Let's make that agreement. <laughs> All right. Well, so Marconi uh, was actually Italian nobility. He was born in 1874, never formally educated, like a lot of our inventors on visography. Right. I've noticed that. A lot of the folks that were these great, huge, you know, great minds of their time never went to school. Yeah, I think Nuts. current American culture, we place so much importance on a college education and your ability to sort of do anything without a college education is is brought into question. When when you look back in history, so many great business minds, inventors, engineers, just great businessmen and women uh, did not have college. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marconi was one of those. And he, in 1894, at the age of 20, started experimenting with... Radio waves, because, you know, that's what all people do when right, they're 20. Right, right. Every 20-year-old likes to do that. What? Right. <laughs> uh, a year after that, 1895, he uh, discovers that he could reach a greater range with radio waves if he kind of raised the height of the antenna and, uh, like, sort of borrowing a technique in wired telegraphy, I guess, which was a the thing then. How do you say that? Telegraphy? Telegraphy? I don't know. Is it like calligraphy? <laughs> but telegraphing, right? The yes. Exactly. Anyway, he sort of followed their techniques is the bottom line and figured out he could sort of get radio waves to go further. So he's basically starting to invent a wireless form of transmission yeah. using radio waves. Um, and so as he starts to build this and realizes he can repeat it and do something with it, he knows he wants to start a business. I guess there wasn't money in Italy at that time to do it. So he goes over to the UK. This is now 1896. And later that year gets the world's first patent for a system of wireless telegraphy. <laughs> We're going with telegraphy. So he's in the UK. Uh, and in 1897, a year after he uh, has the patent, he starts the Wireless Telegraph and Signal Company Limited. And later, that company gets renamed to Marconi Wireless Telegraph 
company. Two years later, American Marconi was organized as a subsidiary company, and it was uh, formed to hold the rights to use the Marconi patents in the United States and Cuba at the time. Wow. So in just a few years, he already went international. Yes. Wow. I know. And it's like, we're sort of glazing over that part, but that's, you can tell that's pretty successful. He's in the UK, gets a patent, starts a company. And two years later, people are wanting to have that patent in other countries and Mm -hmm. and make use of it. So pretty good. Uh, He, by the way, was a genius. I think there's really no other way around it. Absolutely. There was competition, of course, in the marketplace, uh, but in 1912, American Marconi took over uh, the assets of some of the competition because they weren't doing as well. Of course, he had the patent, so that helps, right? But he took over the assets of the bankrupt United Wireless Telegraph Company, and from that point forward, his company, what was American Marconi, was the dominant radio communications company in the United States. And so then, uh, fast forward, 1914, just two years after that, World War I begins. And it's worth noting that Marconi served in the war for Italy, and during that time, continued his study of radio waves, and in fact, was considered one of the contributors to the invention of radar. The guy was, I'm not kidding, like, really, this was one of the brilliant minds of that era. He was given, like, awards and honorary degrees by pretty much everyone for his contributions (laughs) to science, including getting the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1909, which he shared with another professor. Right. He dedicated his life to his work, Dana. I mean, so much so, in fact, that do do you know how Marconi actually ended up dying? No, I don't think I got that far in his story. Right. So he was (laughs) he was helping to develop microwaves like back in the 20s, way before it became commonplace. And he was up there in years when he was doing this in the span of like 16 months. He ended up having nine strokes. He had like he had two or three strokes. And finally, they said, listen, you know, Marconi, you've got to take a back seat. You're getting up there in years. Help us with research. But you don't need to be in here with us with all of these crazy radio waves. It's affecting your heart. He was so dedicated to his work. He stuck to it until finally he had his ninth stroke and they couldn't bring him back. Wow. He was that dedicated to his work. It literally killed him. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy, especially because, you know, you remember when microwaves, well, you don't remember when microwaves first came out and they were like, don't stand too close to the microwave, right. <laughs> you know, you'll get you I know, remember radiation that poisoning. Up. I or used whatever. to love watching my Hot Pocket cook when I was a kid. My yeah. mom used to never let me stand there and watch. Right. Don't stand too close to it. Yeah. Right. Because, you yeah, know, nine it strokes. might kill us. Right. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Back to our timeline, though. Right. So really, Marconi is a, obviously a hugely important part of the beginning of the story of radio, which, by the way, is building us up to the beginning of the story of RCA. But without that foundation, you can't really tell the right. story. So here we are. It's during World War One, and the U.S. government decides that it needs to commandeer the private businesses just in general, that it feels like it needs to win the war. And that includes the radio business. Right. The Navy knew that communication was key. So in April of 1917, when the U.S. finally decides to jump into the war, the military starts to take over a lot of civilian radio stations. Then about a year and a half later, when the war ends in November of 1918, the Navy kind of likes having all these radio stations and wants to keep control over all of them, even now that the war is over. Well, you know. Nick, it's hard to give things back once you get used to having them. Uh, Alas, Congress eventually, I guess Congress had a conscience at the time, uh, and Congress eventually forces the Navy to return all the stations it has taken 
back to their private owners. Right, but the Navy doesn't want to give them up that easily. They go national security, and they're also worried about returning some of these really high-powered stations that they now had control of, because they'd put money into them while they were in control of them. They didn't want to give those stations back to American Marconi, because even though it was called American Marconi, it was mostly British-owned. And the British at the time had like almost all of the undersea cables between North America and Europe. So even though the British are our ally, we still don't want them to have that much power, right? Yeah, seems about right. Right. (laughs) That's how we roll. Part of the reason is that a piece of equipment called an Alexanderson alternator was made by GE, and it was like hundreds of times more powerful and reliable than the spark transmitters that they had been using in the towers. Right. So that piece of equipment was one of the things the Navy was trying to protect, right? So in 1918, when American Marconi regains control of its stations, uh, it has one of these Alexanderson doohickeys. (laughs) And they're like, hey, this thing is pretty powerful. It's pretty cool. Let's put this in all of our stations. We want this thing. So American Marconi uh, executives go to General Electric and they make a deal to buy a whole big old bunch of them. But the Navy is not having it. Uh, They are like, if American Marconi gets their order from GE, they'll have way too much control over international communications. So then the Navy goes to GE looking for a way to have a, I'll air quote this, all-American company and to take over American Marconi's assets. Right. It was so intensely involved by the Navy that they literally sent two naval officers to meet with GE's president at the time, a guy named Owen D. Young, and they asked him to stop the sales of those alternators to American Marconi. And of course, GE's like, yeah, no, they already put the order in. Like, we're already basically starting to do it, and we're going to make huge profits. So the officers (laughs) tell the president of GE, well, why don't you just buy American Marconi and do the radio thing yourself? And that is how RCA was born. Yep. So in November of 1919, GE General Electric completes the purchase and transforms American Marconi into the Radio Corporation of America, RCA. And it's right from its start, the very largest communications firm in the U.S. at the time. So this is like a very different story than a lot of the other stories that we've told, because the day that RCA became a company, it was already the biggest. Right. So the new company, of course, also was promoted as being a patriotic gesture by GE. And just to be sure the company stays all-American, RCA's incorporation papers required that its corporate officers be U.S. citizens and that a majority of the stock be held by Americans. Wow. That would not fly, I think, in any way for a company today. Uh, Yeah, companies would not agree. But again, this was sort of the government forcing-ish, coercing, coercing, (laughs) we'll go with coercing GE into this. And so they were really wanting to make sure... Um, that it was going to be American. And, you know, listen, we could go off on an entire tangent here, but we don't really know what conversations went on behind the scenes between the American government and GE around the formation of RCA. You have to imagine, given everything we know now, that there were some other promises made. Absolutely right. I mean, if we're while we were doing the research of RCA, there are far too many <clears throat> admirals and generals in the story of RCA. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we know how, you know, government scratches the back of business mm. and vice versa. And that's clearly what was going on here. Uh, the official story is, you know, wrapped up in a nice bow and it's very pretty. But the reality, I, who knows what they were promised. 
So essentially, RCA is not a company founded by a wacky inventor or someone passionate about a particular product, like a lot of our other episodes have been. But rather, it's a joint effort between a massive American company and the U.S. government to get control of a powerful technology. Now, we do also need to point out, though, that when RCA began, it wasn't really about radio as entertainment or broadcasting to a wide audience the way we think about it now. It was really about point-to-point communications across long distance, wireless telegraphs. That was what it was about. Yeah, super important point. And so, of course, the next question is, how did RCA go from something that was of great interest to the U.S. military for its point-to-point communications ability? And how does it go from that to become the brand that was known for music and movies and TV and radio when I was growing up? It's all about leaders with vision, of course, like all the companies we've talked about on Bizography. And one of those early leaders was David Sarnoff. We'll get to his story next. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. So RCA becomes a thing, essentially the renamed American Marconi, but now GE-owned, in 1919. And its first president is the guy who was the president of American Marconi. He was named Edward J. Nally. And while Nally did have a storied career in radio, as it was at the time, uh, and though he was the first president of RCA and the president for several years, without an up-and-comer named David Sarnoff, radio and television might not be what they are today. 
So David Sarnoff was born in 1891 outside Minsk in Imperial Russia. I just really wanted to say Minsk. Minsk. Uh, He was nine years old when he immigrated to the United States with his family. He was the oldest of five kids, I believe. And uh, they settled on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. In 1906, just a couple of years later, Sarnoff, who is another one of our so-called geniuses with very little formal education, he, in fact, did not have any formal education beyond elementary school, uh, goes and gets his first job, 1906. He's 15 years old, and he goes to work for the commercial cable company, which turns out to be a direct competitor of American Marconi. Later that year, he asked for some paid leave for Rosh Hashanah. He was Jewish. And his boss said, nope. So he said, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya, (laughs) and left the company and instead moved over to the competition, American Marconi, getting a job as what at the time was called an office boy. Basically what we call probably today an intern. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I assume it was a paid, it was a paid intern, right, actually, I right. do know, it was a paid intern, but yes, um, right. Coffee, you know, back then, probably papers and stuff like that, but he he didn't definitely was not doing anything highly radio related. He's no. working for the company, but... Also, just a fun side note of that, he was making $5.50 a week <gasps> for that job. Wow. Yeah. Uh, He was just, he was a hard worker. And so he was moving up and over the years, and he stayed there and he just kind of moved his way up. But one of the jobs he had along the way was, here, I'm going to struggle again with the pronunciation, a telegrapher. Yeah, that's good. Okay. (laughs) He was a telegrapher and in 1912 was actually managing the new Marconi station atop Wanamaker's department store in Manhattan. There's actually an interesting story about him being at that station, being a telegraph manager. So during the sinking of the Titanic in 1912, David Sarnoff and two other operators that he was managing sent and received wireless messages for 72 hours surrounding the accident to gather names for uh, names of survivors for anxious relatives wanting to know if their family was okay. The only catch here is that later on, David Sarnoff told the story as like he was the one guy in the room who stayed up for 72 hours to get everybody's names. Like he kind of made himself into a hero. It's so interesting. We see people doing this like throughout history. This is still happening. This is like a a thing that people feel the need to do to take something that's already really great (laughs) and just exaggerate it a little bit. I mean, we see politicians doing it. And by the way, on both sides of the aisle, all the time. It's like, you know, I did this big thing. No, I did this thing that was bigger than big. It was huge. (laughs) It's like, it was good enough when it was just a big thing. Yeah, if it's good, it's good. It's good. (laughs) Uh, In any case, really interesting that that is a a personality trait that I think, interestingly, a lot of really successful people seem to have. It's true. It's kind of the, you, you almost have to have a little bit of an ego. Yeah, it's like a little bit of braggadociousness or something. Yeah, that's a good word, braggadociousness. Yeah. In any case, Sarnoff continues to climb the ranks after that uh, Titanic incident. And around 1915 or 1916, about three years before uh, American Marconi uh, actually became RCA, Sarnoff is uh, already thinking about the possibilities for radio. And he sends a memo to the president of the company, Edward J. Nally, proposing that the company develop a radio music box for what at the time was thought of as the amateur market, meaning the consumer market, all of us. Um, And he's predicting that there's an opportunity for radio to be in every home, like the phonograph, the record player essentially was at the time. 
There's a little interesting historical footnote here, which is that the official memo that he wrote in 1915 or 1916 has never been found. And so there's been a lot of searching for it because there are references to it, but nobody can find it. So it is sort of lost to history, but it is believed to have existed uh, because there are other references to it. And also in that same sort of braggadociousness that was David Sarnoff, only like, you know, maybe 10 to 15 years later, he himself was having people go look for that original letter because he wanted to take credit for the idea. Right. He wanted to make sure he had proof that it was his idea. I was cool before it was cool. That's right. <laughs> um, in any case, you have to remember that we now think of radio and the idea of broadcasting as super normal. We're completely used to it. But at the time, as we already sort of talked about, radio was a technology that was point to point. And it was a fascination for the military. I mean, it wasn't something that average people were thought to be uh, having a need for. Yeah, most of the equipment and money came from government agencies wanting to be able to talk to boats at sea. Yeah. That's really where most of it came from. Yeah, and the trains were using it, some of those kinds of things. And it's really interesting because, you know, Sarnoff allegedly writes this memo and sends it to Nally. And Nally, at the time, resists the idea because he is heads down, focused on the current clients he has and the current markets they have. And he's not looking to sort of try this new crazy thing. Um, That's a different kind of leader. And like I said, he had a storied career in broadcasting. He was, you know, obviously a good manager. He worked as webs, president of a big company. But he, I think, if if he had not had sidekick Sarnoff, essentially, (laughs) he would uh, probably not have taken RCA nearly to where it ended up going. Right. He just didn't have maybe the foresight that Sarnoff had. He wasn't a visionary. Right. Sarnoff was a visionary. And visionaries, by the way, often have visions of wonderfulness that work out, and they also have see things that are not real. Right. And that is really the tale of Sarnoff's life from there. He he had vision for some things that were that became icons and part of our culture. And then some of the other things he tried were just massive flops. So that's sort of a little bit of who Sarnoff was. But by the early 1920s, the idea of broadcasting was starting to catch on. And David Sarnoff was right there uh, at the forefront. Interestingly enough, it wasn't music that had the first real moment as a broadcast. It was sports. Yeah, it was a sporting event. So Sarnoff contributes to this rising interest in radio post-World War I by helping to arrange for the broadcast of the boxing match between Jack Dempsey and Georges Carpentier. I tried really hard on that name. That was very <laughs> in French. July of 1921. <laughs> and almost 300,000 people heard the fight. And almost instantly, home radio equipment demand skyrocketed in like the consumer market. It just makes me want to say, like, and then the Super Bowl TV buying era was born. Right. Million dollar commercials. Boom. (laughs) 1922. (laughs) Obviously, uh, we skipped a whole lot of history in between those two things. But but essentially, it was that same idea, right? A big sporting event is played in a broadcast fashion. People are like, this is really cool. I want to buy a radio now so I can get more of this. Because essentially, it was marketed as you can be at the event without having to buy a ticket. And that was groundbreaking at the time. Yeah. So uh, that was 1921. And after that success that RCA had with that boxing match, they quickly moved to expand on their broadcast activities and set up their first full-time broadcast station. It was WDY in New Jersey. 
By the spring of the following year, 1922, Sarnoff's prediction of popular demand for broadcasting has essentially come true. And RCA starts not only setting up the stations from which to broadcast, but also selling the receivers for people to have in their homes. Uh, At the time, they were doing it under the brand name Radiola. But if you think about it, they really were going after the entire market. We're going to do the broadcasting, and we're going to sell you the machine to receive the broadcast. It makes me think almost of like a real estate agent who both sells the house for the seller and helps the buyer buy the house. They were dipping into both ponds. That's right. So in 1923, RCA is now operating three radio stations. They've got WJZ, which is now... Uh, WABC in New York, so still exists. They've got WJY in New York City, and they've got WRC, which is now WTEM, WTEM in Washington, D.C. Interestingly, radio has such a funny history like that. There's so many stations that have existed forever, essentially, and just changed call letters uh, or ownership or whatever. A lot of them have been like that same tower, too, Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, that's 1923. Well, in 1926... AT&T, who had also been dabbling in the broadcast industry, suddenly drops out of the industry altogether, and RCA gets the opportunity to purchase their two radio stations, which are WEAF and WCAP, both in Washington, D.C., and uh, AT&T's network operations. So at this point, RCA has a strong foundation to create a new division of its company just for broadcasting. And that is how another iconic brand you know and love is born. It's NBC. And that three-tone chime is so recognizable. It really is. Fun fact, that was actually the first audio trademark in the United States. It was registered in 1950. That's really cool. And it's kind of a local tie-in for us. As we mentioned before, we do record bizography here in Atlanta. And that three-tone chime actually came from NBC affiliate WSB here in Atlanta. An executive at NBC's headquarters in New York tuned in to hear a Georgia Tech football game. And the local producers here decided they were going to use it. He heard it and loved it. Called back down to the station on Monday and said, hey, can we use it nationally? And they said, sure. And that is how it came to be. It, it feels like that story is just a little piece of all of the interconnectedness that is the story of RCA. RCA is the company that kicks off NBC. That was in the mid-1920s, before uh, World War II, before the Great Depression, But RCA, for the next mm, 20 to 30 years, is an iconic company that is growing. They are ahead of the curve, innovating, inventing new technologies, um, and creating a whole bunch of iconic products and brands. And the ones that they didn't create, they intersected with in some way. They owned them, or they were bought by them, or there were just so many intersections, they were hard to miss. We'll get into all the innovations, inventions, and intersections of RCA and the rest of the world right after this. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. 
Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job has got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. So as we said, it was 1926 when RCA announced the creation of this new division for broadcasting called the National Broadcasting Company, known to us now as NBC. Now, of course, it wasn't television at the time. It was radio. But it's also, I think, important to note that it was not fully owned by RCA, even at the very beginning. It was their idea. It was fully credited, really, to David Sarnoff and his um, brilliance in deal-making and and forward-thinkingness. But remember, first of all, he was still four years from even being president of the company. But also, um, he was a dealmaker. And so NBC comes together with RCA as the majority owner, but also their parent company, GE, has a big share. And Westinghouse, which was really a competitor to GE, also has a share. And that relationship, uh, GE, Westinghouse, RCA, was pretty fraught throughout the years. Um, and caused some issues with the government and, uh, you know, monopolies and all of that, which did impact RCA, but really would take us four more episodes, I think, of bizography to fully delve into, (laughs) right? Lots of legalities there. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So as uh, the 20s move on, uh, RCA continues its growth. And in 1929, RCA gets into consumer electronics for the first time. They purchase the Victor Talking Machine Company. I love that name. The talking machine, the Victor talking machine. It sounds very old timey. It does. Uh, They were, of course, at the time, the world's largest manufacturer of phonographs, including the famous Victrola and phonograph records. That word phonograph also has sort of gone to the dust heap of history. Yeah. Like if you you ask a a Gen Zer what a phonograph is. You ask a millennial what a phonograph is. Listen, folks. Basically, it's a record player. It's a record player <laughs> with like a big horny thing. Yeah, the, the big, the big yeah. fancy flower bell looking thing. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, the deal to buy the Victor Talking Machine Company also was a deal put together by David Sarnoff. And in that deal, they also got a majority ownership in a related company, the Japan Victor Company, which... You may remember because in the U.S. it was also somewhat iconic in that we called it JVC. Wow. Wow. 
yeah. another three-letter brand that was big and is kind of gone. And I also think if you ask most people, even those who knew JVC, myself included, that it stood for Japan Victor Company, I would not have known that. No idea. Yeah. I had JVC cassettes, yeah. the, the video cassettes, <laughs> like lined up on my you know bookshelf, and I never knew what JVC stood for. <laughs> who cared, right? Right. It was a good VHS tape. There he go. Exactly. Uh, so in 1930, finally, David Sarnoff takes over as the president of RCA. I feel like the way we're telling the story, that was inevitable. It probably didn't feel that way to him. Right. Definitely not. Because he had sat under the shadow of some of these presidents for Years. over a decade. Yeah, right? And long, he long just time. never could get there. Exactly. Happened. Right. Uh, but he was a hard worker. He mm -hmm. persevered and uh, he was there waiting for his his turn. And it came in 1930. And and. Uh, I don't know that we're going to really get through the rest of his entire career, but essentially he ran the company until, for the rest of his life, essentially. Pretty much. Um, his son took over at some point further down the road. I think Robert Sarnoff, I believe, was his son who took over much later. Uh, but he stayed on and was on the board and all of that and, and was really working until the year before he died. Yeah. Uh, which was, I think, in the early 1970s. He yes, died in 1971. Yeah. So in any case, back in the 30s, uh, he takes over in 1930, David Sarnoff does as president. And then in 1931, continuing down that consumer electronics road, RCA begins to sell the first electronic turntable. So, you know, the Victrola, the phonograph, now really gets into the turntable era. Right. And this is all because of the invention and innovation of RCA. They sort of fixed the technology, made it better, uh, created this new stylus that made the quality of record playing so much better, and that that became the standard and stayed the standard for a long time. Yeah, for the entire industry, basically right. copied what they did. Yeah, exactly. Now, we mentioned um, that the intersection of Westinghouse and GE and RCA was a little bit fraught, legally speaking, and that started to come to a head in the early 1930s. Um, so much so, in fact, that RCA was... Um, sort of forced out onto its own, essentially. Does that make sense? Sort of thrown out of the nest of GE, and <laughs> right? Yeah, the government came in and said, go get your own house. Yeah. You're not staying here anymore. <laughs> right. There was too much of a, a monopoly, and so yep. GE was not really allowed to keep them anymore. So RCA in the 1930s becomes its own company, mm -hmm. and GE is no longer attached. In 1933, and this is more of the intersection part that I kind of love, 1933, 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York, becomes the RCA building. It's the headquarters back then of both RCA and NBC. I think everybody who watches television knows about 30 Rockefeller Plaza, right? Kind of, yeah. Of course you do, right? I think so. It's I, pretty iconic. Yeah, I think everybody knows. And NBC is still there to this day yes, at 30 Rockefeller Plaza. And RCA was actually the primary investor in the building itself when it began in 1930. And in fact, David Rockefeller cites RCA's action investing in the project as being responsible for the salvation of the project. It had some financial difficulties. So RCA is the reason that building's there. Right. That's so cool. The iconic Rockefeller Plaza <laughs> in New York City that people go to as tourists right. would not exist, is what we're saying here, if it wasn't for RCA, a brand that you have all but forgotten about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that gives me chills. They continue on with their growth and their success. And of course, radio is giving way at this point in history to television. Mm -hmm. Television technology is starting to um, advance. And in... 1939, RCA demonstrates an all-electronic black-and-white television system. I like that it's a system. <laughs> at the 1939 New York World's Fair, 
And they also developed the first ever television test pattern. Yeah, so that old school, the, the I mean, we probably mostly know them as the colored bars. They were black and white and gray back then. But yeah, yeah that pattern yeah. made by RCA. Yeah, interesting to note for the kitties who are probably not listening yet, but maybe will in a few years, that TV was not 24-7 when it started. It turned off. It turned off at midnight in a lot of places. <laughs> little national anthem played, a little flag waving, and then the test pattern came on. And thank you, RCA. RCA is what you slept to. Probably many days <laughs> back when you were a kid, fell exactly. asleep to. <laughs> uh, also in 1939, the first television broadcast aired at that same uh, New York World's Fair, and it was introduced by David Sarnoff himself. It was only seen in the New York area because there was only one station, and only about a thousand people saw it on the 200 TV sets that existed in New York at the time. And I will say, I tried to do some research on this part. Nobody knows how many TV sets there are, but let's just think about how many millions of people in New York. Most households have at least two. It's just crazy to think there were only 200 TV sets in New York City at a time. Yeah, right? I think we need some some tweets on this one. First of all, I got to ask you, Nick, how many TV sets in your house? Oh, in my house alone, we've got probably five. And, but you have a lot of people. We do your have house. a lot of people, but we've yeah, we've got one in each bedroom, one in the living room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I live alone, and I want to say I have three. <laughs> yeah, and that doesn't include the computer screens on which I can watch television. And remind you, folks, this is only like a generation ago. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I love the little uh, fun fact you found about the Macy's Thanksgiving oh, yeah. Day Parade. <laughs> yeah. 1939 at this little bitty station with a couple thousand people watching was the first time that Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade was aired on television. And it has been on TV ever since. Which is crazy. Yeah. 80 years. Crazy to think about that. A couple years later, 1941, commercial television officially begins. RCA quickly becomes the market leader of manufactured TV sets, because remember, they're in the consumer electronics business. Mm -hmm. And NBC becomes the first television network in the United States. Fun fact on that front, the first official paid TV advertisement broadcast by any U.S. station was for the watch manufacturer Bulova. It's really cool. Right before a Brooklyn Dodgers baseball game. Huh. What? <laughs> <laughs> My brain hurts. All of these intersections. All right. So then on October uh, 12th, 1943, uh, after some trouble with the FCC, once again, in this whole era of, uh, you know, RCA and GE and everybody being too big and dominating markets, uh, the FCC says NBC now is too big, and it has been operating with essentially two divisions, NBC Red, which is its traditional commercial radio at the time primarily, and NBC Blue, which is its sort of non-commercial radio, kind of like a private version of NPR. Yeah, that's a valid example. And the FCC now says, uh, you can't do that. You're too big. You got to sell one or the other. We don't care which one. Well, obviously, they're going to keep the one that makes them money, right. which would be the commercial station, NBC Red. And so they decide, as I said, in uh, October of 1943 to get rid of NBC Blue and sell it off. So they sell it to a candy maker. A, a, a candy guy? Yeah. In TV? Okay. Yeah, this was a guy named Edward Noble. He was a candy magnate. And he bought NBC Blue for $8 million in 1943. Wow. And renamed it The Blue Network. It's not that creative. That's true. It's really not. It just took what was given to him. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Blue Network changed its name in 1946 to <clears throat> the American Broadcasting Company. That's that other iconic television company we know so well, 
ABC. What the? Okay, so basically what you're saying is RCA made NBC and kind of by default ABC as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. Two of the biggest TV networks in the country. Right. And you've got to tell everybody, Nick, because you did this homework, <laughs> what Edward Noble is really famous so for. Edward Noble got all of his money to buy the Blue Network from founding the Lifesavers Company. So the next time you've got ABC on the television and you're eating Lifesavers, Edward Noble's spirit is smiling down upon you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So he didn't invent Lifesavers. He was actually a chocolate manufacturer, but he um, bought the invention of Lifesavers from another guy. And I also love the fact that Lifesavers were created as a, quote, summer candy, unquote, because, well, you know, they didn't melt. Right. That's the whole point that Edward Noble got involved is he couldn't sell much chocolate in the summer. People didn't want it. It melted. He wanted something that didn't melt and boom. So cool. Love that. Um, All right. So meanwhile, NBC retains what was the red network. They drop the red part and it just is NBC and it stays NBC and it stays under RCA ownership into the 1980s, all the way up until 1986. So before we get to the 80s, we have to stick with our original timeline. And the sale of NBC Blue was in the early 1940s. That gets us right into the World War II era. I think it's fair to say that a lot went on uh, with RCA during those years, but it was mostly around wartime technology. And so we'll kind of let that go. Somebody else can cover that in their (laughs) podcast uh, and look at sort of what was going on in the 1950s and beyond. So in the early 1950s, RCA had a lot of success in the television world, doing a better job than anybody else with color TV technology. Of course, up to that point, television had been all black and white, and the television sets were made to handle black and white transmissions. The new color TV technology that everybody else was coming up with required people to buy a new TV set. But RCA came up with technology that would work with existing black and white sets or new color TV sets. And that is why they sort of became uh, the standard and RCA televisions became the hot consumer electronic item. And that is why I remember having them because they were the hot TV all the way through the 1980s. Also, because of their proficiency in color technology, they became the professional video camera and studio gear company also. So all the big TV stations uh, that were making shows were using RCA technology. I.e., you mean CBS and ABC, the biggest competitors of NBC. Ding, ding, (laughs) double ding. That is exactly right. Gotcha. Yeah, so that's what really the 50s was doing. Again, this is all under the umbrella of David Sarnoff during his presidency of the company. And that gets us all the way into the 1960s. In 1965, uh, David Sarnoff's son, Robert Sarnoff, takes over the company. And it is that era that starts to be the beginning of the end of RCA because Robert just wasn't the visionary that his father was. Uh, In the 1960s, RCA gets into mainframe computers, but doesn't do it well. Um, They get into home computers and don't do it well. Uh, And they invest a lot of money in various technologies that essentially just are not first and not best. That brings us to a philosophy for the company of RCA to just sort of grow by buying up other companies, which is sort of Perfect for our story because we keep telling you how they intersected with all these other brands. Well, in the 1960s and 1970s, they did it essentially by buying them. In that era, they bought companies like Hertz Rental Cars. Yeah. Banquet Foods, (laughs) which uh, they then later sold to ConAgra. 
They owned Random House Publishing for about, I think, 15 years. They owned Coronet Carpeting. They owned a greeting card company, Gibson Greeting Cards, which you've probably seen. So that was all just RCA trying to become a massive conglomerate, but without that sort of focus on broadcasting and broadcasting technology that they had had before. Right. So that gets us kind of close to the extinction event that caused RCA ultimately to completely go away, right? Way to bring back our dinosaur reference. (laughs) I like it. Yeah, we started the episode talking about how RCA was kind of like the dinosaurs in that they were huge, they were everywhere, and then they vanished. So up next, we'll talk about what happened. Where did they go? What was their meteor? Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. So we got to take this dinosaur analogy uh, all the way to the end of our episode because we started out by saying, you know, for me as a kid growing up in the 1980s, RCA seemed to be everywhere. And then, you know, I got into my life and I looked up a few years later and no more RCA. And I never really understood what happened. But the truth is they really started dying in the 1970s. I just wasn't aware of it yet because it hadn't really hit the consumer market the death, right? Right. And so it was really in 1975 when things started going terribly wrong. Now, by this point, David Sarnoff has been dead for four years. Robert Sarnoff, his son, has been uh, at the helm for about 10 years, and he's just pretty much done everything wrong. So much so that he gets ousted in 1975 in a boardroom coup led by a guy named Anthony Conrad, who became the new company president. 
Well, Conrad resigns less than a year later, admitting that he failed to file some income tax returns for like, I don't know, half a decade. Oh, that's so bad. And then the guy, right, that takes over for him, a guy named Edgar Griffiths, proves so unpopular they make him retire in early 1981. Yeah, so basically they're picking one loser after the next. Um, The final guy was a guy named Thornton Bradshaw, who was the final president of RCA and pretty much took them to the end. Um, I don't even know. Can you do that gracefully? Ugh, quietly, to, I mean, least, maybe quietly without right. scandal. That's I, we'll give him credit for that <laughs> without scandal. So in that era, essentially what's happening is they've had a lot of failures. All those companies that we were mentioning that they bought towards the end of uh, the 60s and in the early 70s, they sort of bought and sold, maybe made a few bucks on uh, or lost some money on. But all the inventions that they went after and tried They just spent millions on research and development that went straight into the garbage, essentially. Right. The mainframe computers failed. They had a video game console that failed. They had a version of a CD that came out way too late and totally got crushed by eight tracks. So they lost hundreds and billions of dollars in the 70s and 80s. Right. Now, they had a couple pieces of uh, business, a couple lines of business that were doing well. Um, One of them was RCA Records, for example, that that was doing pretty well. But it wasn't massive financial success, but it was solid. The real rock star, though, was NBC. NBC was crushing it in those days. And media on the whole was a really popular thing to be invested in. I mean, that was in the era, you think about it, in the 70s and the 80s is the early era of cable. It's when CNN is starting to come up and some of those others. So investing in television and media in general is a popular thing to do. At that time, I feel like we need some, like, dun-dun-dun, re-entering the picture is the once parent company, GE. Oh, GE's going to swoop in and, and save little brother, right? They're going to come in and save the day. Except they didn't. Oh. They didn't really care about the brand RCA, but GE does finally come in uh, 10 years after the meteor shower essentially began. (laughs) They come in in uh, 1985 and they buy back essentially RCA, except they really just bought it because they wanted NBC. It's like buying the box of Cracker Jack just to get the prize and throwing out all of the delicious caramel corn. That's a great that's a great example. They wanted the toy at the bottom. <laughs> that's right. You buy the cereal to get the prize at the bottom of the box. That's exactly it. So they buy back RCA and just begin selling off all of the RCA assets. I mentioned RCA music. That got sold to BMG. And that's essentially who owns it to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it either just was sold off or just shut down altogether. And little by little, the pieces that were RCA began to fade from the consumer market. So where RCA TVs were everything, they stopped being manufactured. And, you know, people still had them in their homes, which is why in the 80s, I didn't know that RCA was gone, really, because we didn't need a new TV yet. It wasn't until you needed a new TV and you went out to go buy one and you realized some other brands had taken over. Right. Do you remember Zenith? Zenith TVs? Oh, gosh, yes. That was the same time period. Also gone. Oh, wow. Yeah, Yeah. Also completely disappeared. Yeah. In any case... It really is uh, an interesting phenomenon because this was a company that sort of came out of a government conspiracy, grew because of the genius and, you know, visionary thinking of one man, essentially, and the team that he built. And then when he was no longer there to, to you know, to shepherd the company in the right direction, it floundered and disappeared. Right. I will say, though, it's almost like, you know, we have the bones of dinosaurs now. We don't still have them around, but we can still have a 
a, an inkling of what they were like. In the same way, the RCA brand name still exists, mostly internationally, but it's like other companies that have contracted with companies. Nothing RCA is RCA. It's made by other people. But the brand name still exists on certain things out there. Yeah, I think the most sort of famous part of RCA that is still out there that people sort of go, oh, yeah, if you say it to them, is the RCA Records. Right. It's the music label. Um, because they won, you know, awards over the years that various artists that were signed to RCA Records were Grammy winners and all of that. So there is some recognition of RCA record label. But I agree with you. I think beyond that, it's not here. It's not in the U.S. No, it's not. And and to your point, it's just licensed at this point. There is no company called RCA. There's just the brand name that's licensed out to other parts of the world. Uh, which would be really weird to go to another country and see like an RCA TV. Right. It's almost kind of like that that hit of nostalgia yeah. a little bit probably to see an RCA TV set. Yeah. I, I can't imagine an RCA flat screen. That'd no, be I, so foreign. I can't either. Especially because the logo, <laughs> even the licensed out logo that exists in the world is still the very 1970s looking logo. It is. Logo. It is. Yeah. So I guess, you know, the question really becomes, can a company that is created you know, out of a government conspiracy that sort of isn't really created out of innovation and genius and brilliance, but rather out of a desire to keep technology from another country, can that really ever be a true icon and a successful, you know, I don't know, a successful brand? And I feel like the answer is sort of maybe, because if they had brought another visionary in place after David Sarnoff, and if they had cemented in their... uh you know, their paperwork, how the business was to be run going forward, maybe the company would still exist and be relevant. But they sort of lost it. It turned from a from a government conspiracy company into a, a one-man show sort of company. It very much was David Sarnoff's ship under his command, and he did a great job. But yeah, losing that 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 head person who has, like you said, who is a visionary like that, who has that kind of foresight and forethought to be into broadcast media decades before it happened. It's a big loss to a company when you lose someone like that. Yeah, we didn't really get into it, but this is a guy who in like the early 1960s um, basically predicted the internet. Yeah, he did. And, and, and I mean, he was just really that good uh, and, and that forward thinking. It is really fascinating to see somebody like that uh, and imagine what our world would be like had they not done what they did. Right. And for what it's worth, in his time, RCA was an iconic brand. Absolutely. And that's why I wanted to tell the story. And I think that's almost why I wanted to do this whole series. Like this, like the, the fact that we have dug through all of these company histories now, we're, you know, into, our, I think the, this is what our, our ninth or 10th episode. Right. And I feel like we've kind of gotten down to the layer, you know, if we're instead of paleontologists, if we're like <laughs> archaeologists and we're digging down into deeper layers, you know, this is the kind of story that is in the dust heap of history, as we Mm -hmm. like to say in our opening, but yet it does have value and it is worth knowing because it is so impactful to all of these other companies and all of these technologies that we use to this day. Right. The brand itself may not be iconic anymore, but it has led to so many other icons we still deal with on a day-to-day basis. Right. It's a foundational brand. It is. Um, And, you know, GE is having its own troubles right now. So who knows where they will end up uh, and when we might not know their name anymore. That may be another episode of Bizography in a couple years. It might just. (laughs) On that note, I think we should wrap it up. That is our show for today. We'll see you next time. Bizography is produced by the iHeart Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dana Barrett. My co-host is Nick Bean. Our producer is Tari Harrison. And our executive producer is Jonathan Strickland. Have questions? Want to give us feedback? Or have a company you'd like us to cover? 
Email us at info at show or contact us on social. I'm at the Dana Barrett on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or just search for me on LinkedIn. Thanks for your support. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Nerd Wallet. Finance smarter. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.